Chapter Seven, Part Five of Lady Molly of Scotland Yard by Baroness Orzee. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Christmas Tragedy, Part Five. We remained alone and singularly quiet the whole of that evening. That my dear lady's active brain was hard at work, I could guess by the brilliance of her eyes and that sort of absolute stillness in her person through which one could almost feel the delicate nerves vibrating. The story told her by the lawyer had moved her singularly. Mind you, she had always been morally convinced of young Smethick's innocence, but in her the professional woman always fought hard battles against the sentimentalist, and in this instance the overwhelming circumstantial evidence and the conviction of her superiors had forced her to accept the young man's guilt as something out of her ken. By his silence, too, the young man had tacitly confessed, and if a man is perceived on the very scene of a crime, both before it has been committed and directly afterwards, if something admittedly belonging to him is found within three yards of where the murderer must have stood, if, added to this, he has had a bitter quarrel with the victim and can give no account of his actions or whereabouts during the fatal time, it were vain to cling to optimistic beliefs in that same man's innocence. But now matters had assumed an altogether different aspect, the story told by Mr. Smethick's lawyer had all the appearance of truth. Margaret Seeley's character, her callousness on the very day when her late fiancé stood in the dock, her quick transference of her affections to the richer man, all made the account of the events on Christmas night, as told by Mr. Grayson, extremely plausible. No wonder my dear lady was buried in thought. "'I shall have to take the threads up from the beginning, Mary,' she said to me the following morning when after breakfast she appeared in her neat coat and skirt, with hat and gloves, ready to go out. So, on the whole, I think I will begin with a visit to the Haggards. "'I may come with you, I suppose?' I suggested meekly. "'Oh, yes,' she rejoined carelessly. Somehow I had an inkling that the carelessness of her mood was only on the surface. It was not likely that she, my sweet, womanly, ultra-feminine, beautiful lady, should feel callously on this absorbing subject we motored down to Bishopthorpe. It was bitterly cold, raw, damp, and foggy. The chauffeur had some difficulty in finding the cottage, the home of the imbecile gardener and his wife. There was certainly not much look of home about the place. When, after much knocking at the door, Mrs. Haggett finally opened it, we saw before us one of the most miserable, slatternly places I think I ever saw. In reply to Lady Molly's somewhat curt inquiry, the woman said that Haggett was in bed, suffering from one of his fits. "'That is a great pity,' said my dear lady, rather unsympathetically, I thought, "'for I must speak with him at once.' "'What is it about?' asked the woman sullenly. "'I can take a message.' "'I am afraid not,' rejoined my lady. "'I was asked to see Haggett personally.' "'By whom I'd like to know,' she retorted, now almost insolently. "'I dare say you would.' but you are wasting precious time. Hadn't you better help your husband on with his clothes? This lady and I will wait in the parlor. After some hesitation, the woman finally complied, looking very sulky the while. We went into the miserable little room, wherein not only grinding poverty, but also untidiness and dirt were visible all round. We sat down on two of the cleanest-looking chairs, and waited, whilst a colloquy in subdued voices went on in the room over our heads. The colloquy, I may say, seemed to consist of agitated whispers on the one part, 
and wailing complaints on the other. This was followed presently by some thuds and much shuffling, and presently Haggett, looking uncared for, dirty and unkempt, entered the parlour, followed by his wife. He came forward, dragging his ill-shod feet and pulling nervously at his forelock. "'Ah!' said my lady kindly. "'I am glad to see you down, Haggett, though I am afraid I haven't very good news for you.' "'Yes, miss,' murmured the man, obviously not quite comprehending what was said to him. "'I represent the workhouse authorities,' continued Lady Molly, "'and I thought we could arrange for you and your wife to come into the Union to-night, perhaps.' "'The Union?' here interposed the woman roughly. "'What do you mean?' "'We ain't going to the Union.' "'Well, but since you are not staying here,' rejoined my lady blandly, "'you will find it impossible to get another situation for your husband in his present mental condition.' "'Miss Seeley won't give us the go-by,' she retorted defiantly. "'She might wish to carry out her late father's intentions,' said Lady Molly, with seeming carelessness. "'The Major was a cruel, cantankerous brute,' shouted the woman, with unpremeditated violence. Haggett had served him faithfully for twelve years, and—she checked herself abruptly, and cast one of her quick, furtive glances at Lady Molly. Her silence now had become as significant as her outburst of rage, and it was Lady Molly who concluded the phrase for her. "'And yet he dismissed him without warning,' she said calmly. "'Who told you that?' retorted the woman. "'The same people, no doubt, who declare that you and Haggett had a grudge against the Major for this dismissal.' "'That's a lie,' asserted Mrs. Haggett doggedly. "'We gave information about Mr. Smethick having killed the Major because—' "'Ah,' interrupted Lady Molly quickly, "'but then Mr. Smethick did not murder Major Seeley, and your information, therefore, was useless.' "'Then who killed the Major? I should like to know.' Her manner was arrogant, coarse, and extremely unpleasant. I marvelled why my dear lady put up with it, and what was going on in that busy brain of hers. She looked quite urbane and smiling, whilst I wondered what in the world she meant by this story of the workhouse and the dismissal of Haggett. "'Ah, that's what none of us know,' she now said lightly. "'Some folks say it was your husband.' "'They lie!' she retorted quickly, whilst the imbecile, evidently not understanding the drift of the conversation, was mechanically stroking his red mop of hair and looking helplessly all round him. "'He was home.' "'Before the cries of murder were heard in the house,' continued Mrs. Haggett. "'How do you know?' asked Lady Molly quickly. "'How do I know?' "'Yes, you couldn't have heard the cries all the way to this cottage. Why, it's over half a mile from the hall.' "'He was home, I say,' she repeated with dogged obstinacy. "'You sent him?' "'He didn't do it.' "'No one will believe you, especially when the knife is found.' "'What knife?' "'His clasp-knife.' with which he killed Major Seely, said Lady Molly quietly. See, he has it in his hand now. And with a sudden, wholly unexpected gesture, she pointed to the imbecile, who in an aimless way had prowled round the room whilst this rapid colloquy was going on. The purport of it all must in some sort of way have found an echo in his enfeebled brain. He wandered up to the dresser, whereon lay the remnants of that morning's breakfast, together with some crockery and utensils. In that same half-witted and irresponsible way he had picked up one of the knives and was now holding it out towards his wife, whilst a look of fear spread over his countenance. "'I can't do it, Annie. I can't. You better do it,' he said. There was dead silence in the little room. 
The woman, Haggett, stood as if turned to stone. Ignorant and superstitious as she was, I suppose that the situation had laid hold of her nerves, and that she felt that the finger of a relentless fate was even now being pointed at her. The imbecile was shuffling forward, closer and closer to his wife, still holding out the knife towards her, and murmuring brokenly, "'I can't do it. You better, Annie. You better.' He was close to her now, and all at once her rigidity and nerve strain gave way. She gave a hoarse cry, and snatching the knife from the poor wretch, she rushed at him, ready to strike. Lady Molly and I were both young, active, and strong, and there was nothing of the squeamish grand dame about my dear lady when quick action was needed. But even then we had some difficulty in dragging Annie Haggett away from her miserable husband. Blinded with fury, she was ready to kill the man who had betrayed her. Finally, we succeeded in wresting the knife from her. You may be sure that it required some pluck after that to sit down again quietly and to remain in the same room with this woman, who already had one crime upon her conscience, and with this weird, half-witted creature who kept on murmuring pitiably, "'You'd better do it, Annie.' Well, you've read the account of the case, so you know what followed. Lady Molly did not move from that room until she had obtained the woman's full confession. All she did for her own protection was to order me to open the window and to blow the police whistle which she handed to me. The police station, fortunately, was not very far, and sound carried in the frosty air. She admitted to me afterwards that it had been foolish, perhaps, not to have brought Eddie or Danvers with her, but she was supremely anxious not to put the woman on the alert from the very start. Hence her circumlocutory speeches anent the workhouse and Haggett's probable dismissal. That the woman had some connection with the crime, Lady Molly, with her keen intuition, had always felt, but as there was no witness to the murder itself, and all circumstantial evidence was dead against young Smethick, there was only one chance of successful discovery, and that was the murderer's own confession. If you think over the interview between my dear lady and the Haggetts on that memorable morning, you will realize how admirably Lady Molly had led up to the weird finish. She would not speak to the woman unless Haggett was present, and she felt sure that as soon as the subject of the murder cropped up, the imbecile would either do or say something that would reveal the truth. Mechanically, when Major Seely's name was mentioned, he had taken up the knife. The whole scene recurred to his tottering mind. That the Major had summarily dismissed him recently was one of those bold guesses which Lady Molly was wont to make. That Haggett had been merely egged on by his wife, and had been too terrified at the last to do the deed himself, was no surprise to her, and hardly one to me, whilst the fact that the woman ultimately wreaked her own passionate revenge upon the unfortunate major was hardly to be wondered at, in the face of her own coarse and elemental personality. Cowed by the quickness of events, and by the appearance of Danvers and Eddie on the scene, she finally made full confession. She was maddened by the major's brutality, when, with rough, cruel words, he suddenly turned her husband adrift, refusing to give him further employment. She herself had great ascendancy over the imbecile, and had drilled into him a part of hate and of revenge. At first he seemed ready and willing to obey. It was arranged that he was to watch on the terrace every night until such time as an alarm of the recurrence of the cattle-maiming outrages should lure the major out alone. This effectively occurred on Christmas morning, but not before Haggett, frightened and pusillanimous, was ready to flee 
rather than to accomplish the villainous deed. But Annie Haggett, guessing perhaps that he would shrink from the crime at the last, had also kept watch every night. Picture the prospective murderer watching and being watched. When Haggett came across his wife, he deputed her to do the deed herself. I suppose that either terror of discovery or merely desire for the promised reward had caused the woman to fasten the crime on another. The finding of the ring by Haggett was the beginning of that cruel thought which, but for my dear lady's marvellous powers, would indeed have sent a brave young man to the gallows. Ah, you wish to know if Margaret Seeley is married? No. Captain Glynn cried off. What suspicions crossed his mind I cannot say, but he never proposed to Margaret, and now she is in Australia, staying with an aunt, I think, and she has sold Clavier Hall. End of Part 5 of A Christmas Tragedy End of Chapter 7